Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. I've been battling allergies for years now. Let me tell you, they've been a real ordeal in my life. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available release sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Guys, what's up? What a fun episode. My man, CL Turner, private equity extraordinaire, came on the show and gave us the ins and outs, the secrets, and how to get into private equity, how to be successful in buying companies. Uh, he's a friend, uh, a mentor of sorts. I get to hang out with him a fair amount, and I just wanted to bring him to the greatest machine because I think a lot of people want to be like, how do you buy a company? What do you do? How do you get into private equity? I mean, I'll tell you, it's something I'm super interested in, and uh, what a treat to have CL here to talk to us. So, hope you enjoy it. Stay tuned. Guys, welcome to today's episode of The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazi. Boy, do we have a special guest. My man, the man of the hour, C.L. Turner, is in the house. What's up, C.L.? Keeping it reels. Oh, reels it is. So for those of you that don't know, Mr. C.L., he has a nickname for me. Mr. C.L., what's my nickname? D-Reels. He calls me the D-Reels. I, I, it's my, it, look, I've had a ton of nicknames in my day, but this is probably one of my the favorites. The sharpest part of the spell. <laughs> that's you know what when your last name is 12 letters long with two silent h's you get a ton of nicknames for your first name uh, so d reels is what my main man cl here calls me um so he might be calling me that during the show if he does he's got to bear with it it's just it's a thing that it's a thing and i can't i can't fight it it's i can't fight the love and feeling uh when he says it and so we, that may or may not happen i'm not going to argue one way or the other uh hey cl do you mind if i do a little bit of housekeeping and then we'll get going here Absolutely. Let's do that. So for listeners who are new to the show, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. People are living their passions and those creating greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. And my main man, CL, is neither short of passion nor greatness. So I am at CL. I got two little tidbits on CL, and then we're going to talk about his formal bio because he's a man of many talents. But I met CL through my Tiger 21 group, and I've talked a little bit about that on the show here. And... um and man, right away, I noticed uh, he had an affinity for a couple of things. Number one is he, he has, he, we have a very interesting vocabulary. Like, like CL has a real cool way he talks. He, he has kind of almost like a, it's almost like you're singing when you're talking a little bit. And, and I noticed it right away with my, my man CL. Um, and, and I also noticed that he just, you know, had a, a real har harmonious way about himself. And immediately I was attracted to him. So fast forward to, I don't know, a year ago. I'm in, I'm in Austin International Airport on my way to LA and, and I see, and we're all masked up then because people are still wearing their masks and, and <laughs> maybe this is a year and a half ago and I see CL and he's standing in front of the gate for the flight I'm going to be on. And, and I don't remember exactly what I did, but I remember I like kind of went up to him and I think I went up and either whispered something to you or like gave you a little shove or something, but it was, it was something that you wouldn't do if you, unless you were friends with somebody oh, and if you received it. <laughs> For a moment, D-Reels became D-Thugs. <laughs> you know, my nickname, one of my nicknames in my fraternity was Debo, like like the guy from Friday who would punk people. So, uh, yeah, my Debo came out. D-Reels went away. Debo showed up. And I, I figured if you if you ever give someone a little push or you, in public, they're con like it's way out of context because they're like, who the hell just pushed me? 
and then and then obviously it's a friend so so i, I thought i'd fuck with cl a little bit but uh yeah man then we sat on a flight and got to hang out for four hours and i got to hear all about his amazingness and one of the things that really stood out to me and i'm gonna go into your form about it in a second was i found out that he was in a reggae band in like was it in like jamaica or it was like in the in the, in the caribbean in, in the caribbean the english-speaking caribbean uh, the hotel circuit uh that happened when dinosaurs roamed the earth. So I, I mean, now first and foremost, I haven't gone into his formal about because the man is a badass private equity killer who's just out there crushing it, building tons of value in the businesses with his portfolio companies. Has a huge background in finance, but that's the I find out that my main man and you play keyboard. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Keyboard player in a reggae band in the Caribbean was a college baseball player. I mean, just like like tons of interesting facts about CL. And I loved him even more just to learn those things about him. But the formal bio, I'm going to give you a formal bio. And, then, and I'd love to hear your origin story and kind of talk a little bit about, you know, how you got to where you got to in life. So I'm going to, when I got it, I told him before the show, I was reading it and I laughed out loud because CL is just, I love you, man. You're such a character. You're such an awesome dude. But it says CL writes and plays while his daughter sings much better then he writes and plays. CL has attended more concerts by Ariana Grande, or as we call her, R-E-G. Eight is it R-E-G? Did I pronounce her name properly? <laughs> Ariana Grande, Taylor Swift, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, Adele, Mel- Melanie Martinez, than any other PE professional. Uh, so big lover of music, but most professionally is the founder and managing partner of Crescendo Capital Partners. Notice Crescendo, like as in the music note. Uh, CL has invested in 50 plus companies, he has a daughter who shares the same passion in music. He writes songs and he loves attending concerts. And today, he's here spreading some of his greatness on the Greatness Machine. So, my man, welcome to the show. Well, I'm happy to be here on the Greatness Machine because it makes no damn sense to participate in the mediocrity machine. That's right. Screw that. Screw the media, medium machine. Why don't you? <laughs> well, you, you are a greatness machine, CL. Um, so I'd love if you wouldn't mind, um, we love origin stories here at the Greatness Machine. We'd love to hear kind of context around what got people to where they're at. Would you mind giving us kind of like a, a quick, like five, six minutes, like give us your background. How'd you get into what you got into? Maybe talk a little bit about the reggae stuff, but I'd love to hear about how you got to where you're at, where you're out there buying companies, building Crescendo, doing all these amazing things in the world of business. Um, I guess at the beginning, the origin uh... What is different about me is I, my parents, both deceased, were very old when I was born. Naturally, they were both uh, in their mid and upper 40s. My dad died in 84, my mom in 05. But I was raised essentially by grandparents, although they were, uh, they were my, uh, obviously my parents, but the age difference suggested that. Grew up in Dallas. I went to a bunch of colleges in Texas and got a job as an investment banker in the mid-late 1980s and uh, spent the first 10 years as an investment banker, largely raising capital for companies. But there was a, there was a seminal event that really changed my thinking. Um, Motel 6, Dallas-based, they had most of their properties in Texas and California, was a client. And I learned after the fact a story about how KKR had purchased Motel 6 for a billion. They borrowed 90% of it. And about 18 months later, they sold it for two plus billion, turned 10, 11 times their money, didn't do much with the business, but made a stupendous amount of money. And I said, I am on the wrong side of this table. So it took me about five years to rebrand. Many of the skills are the same between being an intermediary and being a principal. Some are very different, Um, but I worked my way up that ladder and uh, originally formed Crescendo when I worked for a billionaire out of Nevada, I, I absorbed a, a less than an imperfect portfolio and Crescendo was, I first formed it to house the equity action I got in the deals that I inherited and I got slightly more action in the new deals that we did, but actually for a time thought that he would be my essential benefactor or funding or sugar daddy, as you might say, for the rest of my investment career. That turned out not to be true largely because real estate guys view the world differently than private equity guys, kind of strange bedfellows. I, d- I did three or four transactions um, partnering with a group of um, like-minded guys. We would band together based on geographic proximity, domain expertise, bandwidth, what have you. But the seminal event to put uh, for Crescendo was about six or seven years ago. 
uh, when my main collaborator died unexpectedly, when I had three deals under LOI, one of which later became a 30x return for us, uh, which we won't, which we uh, would be lucky to ever replicate. Uh, but I either had to join another firm at that point, or I had to form infrastructure around Crescendo. I was too old, too Texan uh, to want to work for anybody else at that point in my professional career. So uh, brought a guy who I'd served on the board with, knew him to be, be young and very sharp. And uh, then we did another deal and added a guy and we looked uh, today and we are 11 or 12 professionals. We, I think we just closed our, I think it was our 14th deal last week or and uh, maybe 15th. This week, and, um, things have gone very well at Crescendo. Largely, uh, we focus on old economy businesses, and in particular, uh, building things, breaking things, fixing things. Uh, that's us across all all kinds of in markets. Um, and I guess beyond that, I would say yes, I'm a musical a music buff for sure. Uh, sort of a pedestrian player with a pretty good ear, but. Uh, I, uh, it's always been a passion, and uh, I've got an album coming out soon where I've been fortunate enough into my, in my professional career that I could hire world-class musicians to take my 10 least bad, actually 13 least bad songs and give them real professional TLC. Uh, and that's what we've done, and, and I, you couldn't wipe the print off my face for about five days in the studio. and. Um, I think we'll do. It'll become a yearly thing, and uh, uh, every year I'll put out five to ten songs no one else cares about. I love but it, man. In, so beyond that, as you asked for an introduction, um, uh, left-handed, blue-eyed Pisces, and they're like uh, Long Beach walks. <laughs> I love it, man. So I, I want to take a step back. So, so you you did some time as an intermediary, and, and yeah. we talked a little bit about this. You worked for some pretty prolific investment banking firms. How was it making that that switch to the when you said you went from being the intermediary to the principal? Like when you made that move, I mean, obviously that's a really big change, you know. And I'm I myself, as you know, are kind of going through a change right now and trying yes. to you know, pivot in my life. You know, a lot of people do that. You know, especially around midlife, it's this point where you're like, all right, I, I've been doing this. I see. I don't want to keep doing this. What I've been doing, I want to kind of go in this new direction. Like, how did you think about that? Well, was it just like oh, I'm? I mean. You said it took a few years to make that pivot. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I thought it would be shorter than it was. I uh, I can remember telling somebody that I was going to make this change, and he said, a guy I respect, he said, central casting does not see you that way, meaning he had only seen me through the prism of being an intermediary. Uh, I made a couple of good decisions. One, I had some healthcare services expertise at that time. I traded, essentially, some healthcare knowledge. Uh, I'll teach you some healthcare services if you'll help me better understand how the principal world works. And then another good decision, again, uh, came through uh, the advice somebody gave me, which was when I did my first deal on my own as a principal, I didn't have a track record around crescendo. I knew deals, but someone said, you should do your first couple of deals, essentially borrow somebody else's track record, let them on the economics of the deal. Uh, until you establish your own bona fides. And that was great advice, and I took it. Um, the challenge of moving from an intermediary to a principal is, especially as you get further into your intermediary career, where you've spent half decade, a decade, or even a dozen, a couple dozen, a couple of decades, is that an investment banker largely selling businesses just becomes the, the kind word would be champion, uh, the unkind word would be shill. Uh, for the companies you're representing, you lose discernment. The You do every transaction that you think can reasonably uh, result in a fee. That is not the same thing as culling through one in 100, one in 500 transactions. And uh, even for the best investment bankers, it's hard for me too, not that I was the best investment banker, but the change from every client is a great client as long as we can set it, as long as there is a market for that client to uh, I only want to deal with the businesses that are, I believe, you won't always get this right. There are a couple of deviations to the right of the bell curve. Um, it's very different than that of an investment banker, which says as long as something isn't so bad that it, uh, it, through improprieties and will damage my reputation, I would sell it and, and take a fee. Um, the discernment uh, blurs over time. And I, I would say my 
my eight, 10 year stint as an investment banker, which is probably about as long as I could have. And, and again, I mentioned it took me five years for a partial stamp, probably eight until I was fully stamped. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Clarity for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now, and let me tell you, They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life, from canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of the sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose itchy, watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin D user for many, many years now, and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now, I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits, and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear uses directed. Wow. So so when you brought on, first of all, thanks for sharing that. I think that that's a lot of times people get really enthusiastic about making a change because they're maybe tired of what they're, what is it? Uh, familiarity breeds contempt, right? So they're like, oh man, like, like I know this, uh, you know, I've been sleeping with this person for a while. I want something new. I mean, that's maybe, uh, I mean, on the record, I, I'm married, I've been married for two years. That is not my position. No, 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 yeah, no, no, no. I, 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 I was, for yeah, my, my need, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Hey, my wife's like, what the fuck did you just say? Um, no, not you, baby. Um, so, <laughs> No, uh, I, yeah, I didn't mean that. Let's let's uh, let's go in a different direction, Darius. I've been right. eating, yeah, I've been eating uh, rice and beans every night for the last eight years. I really would like some sushi, right? So we we, we want to make a change because we want something new. We see a better opportunity. All the different reasons why people make changes. But, you know, what, do you think that that's you know, if you were to go back and give CL advice then to try to speed up that transition, what advice might you have given yourself? I don't know that I would have been able to do things differently. I would certainly advise someone today uh, differently. When I came up out of uh, B school, there were very few pockets of principal money uh, where you could personally reap the spoils. There were You could invest, but that was largely done on behalf of insurance firms and banks and the like. Private equity firms were in their infancy. But it, it was really a matter of dollars for me. I was 
30, 32 years old, maybe making the equivalent of a half million to a million today, running around all the time thinking that's sexy. And it was. But when I saw what I said, this is the same skill set, slightly tweaked, can result in wealth instead of income. I said, I need to be on that side uh, of the table. Mm. And I would, as I would advise anybody now, I would take any job as a principal, any job before a, a more high, a, a more prestigious or higher paying job as a, as a lender or, or a, an intermediary, because what you're, what you're ultimately after is ownership. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, uh, so when you made that transition, you said that you you had gotten some really sage advice around bringing on a, a partner with a track record. Um, tell us a little bit about I, that. I didn't I think bring that him on so much as I I partnered with him on a couple of deals, and um, he waved his flag as as well as I waved crescendo. But uh, the financing partners for that deal took comfort in the fact that he was involved. Um, because I was a, an unknown entity and it wasn't just him. Uh, there were a couple of others, but my first, actually, I think it might've been five deals. I did that way, partnering with buddies who had, uh, uh, who didn't have more, uh, a longer record than me, but had more of an independent flag that had some name recognition than what I had is just crescendo. Um, and I, I would say, interestingly though, uh, that first guy, uh, that I mentioned, uh, who I partnered with or collaborated with often, as I said, it was his unexpected death, which uh, which led me. Uh, he was my prime collaborator. I had I had to then either, as I said, join another shop or crescendo needs to become a real thing rather than me uh, uh, floating independently, uh, pairing with collaborators on an ad hoc basis. So, so when he when with his obviously tragic and unexpected you know, passing. That puts you in a position to your point where you had to either like you know bury your your the 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 flag under someone else's flag or, or really fly your flag high. It sounds like you took the bolder step and did that. Um, how did that like how how did that feel? Were you like were you like was that like the the no brainer answer or was were you pretty freaked out by that? I knew there was value in the three LOIs that I had, and oh, gotcha. uh, and I, I didn't know that it would turn out as as it did, but. Uh, I knew there was value there. I was pushing 50 at that time. I'd already made some money. I didn't need to feed a family of six. I was in a different financial uh, financial situation. And what I would tell you was asked I don't know, a couple months ago, uh, when did you decide to be an entrepreneur? And the answer is never. Uh, we, just, we just had more deal flow and more requirements and kept adding talent, uh, typically uh, well-known to uh, multiple people at our firm until we woke up one day with 12 people and it's a thing. And, and so, so with those deals, I mean, obviously someone that's trying to get into private equity, like, well, like when, when you look at, sounds to me like one, one thing is that it's probably going to take longer than people expect. And I think that's true of many new endeavors. Um, but, you know, what do you think was one of the keys to your success? Obviously you were able to go out there and make deals happen one of the primary complaints I hear or primary reasons I hear that people fail at going and doing deals in private equity is being able to get those three LOIs under, under contract, being able to find deals, being able to put deals together. What are some of the, like the potholes that you think that people are not able to overcome that you were and how did you do it? Let's say there are two different approaches. One is um, internal, one is external. The internal is within the owner operator's office and convincing him that you and your firm are the right way. Um, I think I have some skills uh, in that regard. I have affinity for the kinds of guys that build the kinds of businesses in which we invest. The other thing that was helpful was uh, I um, allied with a group of operating professionals. So it was, I wasn't just a finance guy uh, running around saying I have a deal, but um, had some talent that could be useful uh, and additive whether from a board or an advisory basis. And uh, that was sufficient to get the deals under LOI. At that time, I invested my own money in deals, but I didn't have the capital strength to invest as much as I do today, where um, in our deals, we invest all the equity ourselves and it's mainly mine. That wasn't the case when I started. I needed to be able to, I needed to be able to communicate a strong case to prospective investors 
And I knew what they didn't like. And um, I said, I, I would say the, the main thing, I would say three variables come to mind. One is uh, some kind of uh, specialty expertise or domain expertise, not just I got in front of a Houlihan Loki pitch book and I'm one of 250 guys that saw it. I know something about this sector. Two is that it is bought right. Um, asking people to play in your deal and give uh, and give economics and pay management fees when you, uh, you are uh, less established than others and you uh, you have at least paid market and maybe more that's anathema to an LP. Um, and then the third part to that is bringing value, bringing value after the close. So when you go uh, to a prospective investor in your deal and say this it's well vetted, it's bought right, we know this space. We have help, we, and we have we can be useful in this play. That resonates, uh, and many what are now called independent spot. And by the way, and we invest our own capital. And you take the opposite of that, which, which many independent sponsors qualify: don't have any money, don't have any expertise, uh, not particularly differentiated, uh, buying it at rack rate. Uh, that's a whole hum. And the question I get asked now. Uh, or the question I think sometimes when people ask me to participate in their deals, um, I, I look at that and say there's nothing differentiated. So you you want to line you want to check all those boxes, and if you do, if you do, you'll get investor interest. But that comes back to the, the I would say the real the the thorny or, or part there is how do you get a founder owner operator a foo? How do you get a foo to sell to you? At market at less than market rate, which is what really drives the rest. And the answer is, you have to be very convincing that in his, um, if he retains equity, which is common, that that second bite of the apple through you is uh, is going to be tastier than it would be elsewhere. And that's how you that's how you get uh, market or, or maybe uh, slightly under market deals. And that's what will ultimately win an investor base when you don't have the capital to do so yourself. And, and when, uh, number one, I appreciate that answer. Number two, you know, I know that in your deals that you guys are, you know, are really working with kind of a combination of, of, of debt and equity. What, what's yeah. your perspective on leveraging debt in your deals and, and, and how would you consider other print? How do you think other people should think about that when they're looking at doing private but, equity? Um, maybe I should mention just one other thing to contrast uh, and I'll answer your question. A deal bounced into me a couple of years ago in the cybersecurity space, and you would very correctly say, CL, what the hell do you know about that? The answer would be absolutely nothing. Um, but a deal came to me, but uh, I sent that deal off to a friend, threw a few bucks behind it, but it's, it's not one where we're differentiated. We don't have any expertise in the like, so I wasn't going to go to market with the, under the crescendo name or something where quite obviously we are, uh, we're naive in that particular sector, handed off to the experts. Uh, with respect to debt, uh, you have vectors moving in two different directions. The obvious one, we're in the ROE business, and the more you lever, the better your returns are. The vector in the other direction, of course, is the more, the more you lever, the more financial risk you take. Every deal you buy, it, I won't say it will wobble out of the chute, but there will be skeletons. There will be things you did not know, no matter how well you vetted. And you need a capital structure that can um, withstand uh, it, at least a, uh, a bump or so of the magnitude that you gave me in the airport. <laughs> um, the, uh, I would say, though, when you're buying businesses, as we focus on unloved, old economy, typically cyclical businesses, we're paying less than four times cash for those. And not, when you say stealing them, there's not a whole lot of other interest. Our typical MO might be to put one and a half turns of earnings in terms of equity, a couple of turns of debt, uh, maybe in a 60-40 ratio. You might say that 60-40 ratio is high, but we look at it more in terms of the, the ratio of uh, debt to the earnings of the business. And if we acquire mm -hmm. a cyclical business and it's levered at two and two and a quarter times, and we know there's a strong backlog and reputation that's going to run for at least a year or two, we say... We say to ourselves, absolutely worst case, we delever to where we're only down to one and a half times EBITDA in terms of leverage. That's that's work that's already on the books. And then if something happens, then we don't want. We hope it doesn't, but if it would, we could certainly uh, uh, we could certainly fight that battle. 
uh, and live another day. Where that becomes more problematic, this all comes back to very, getting a very respectable inbound purchase multiple. If you're buying businesses for seven and you're putting three X of equity and four X of debt and things don't go as you expect out of the chute, your four X of debt just went to five and a half or six X and, you, and the lender owns the company. Hmm. And it, I, it all almost, so the ability to withstand leverage, the ability to attract investors, the ability why we've made great returns because we've been able to leverage cyclical businesses as a percent of our purchase price all comes down to buying them at a respectable price. You, yeah. you can't so, so, Yeah, it makes sense. So, so the, really a lot of the value cr is created on the buy, right? Which I think a lot of we people- We made money every time we close the deal. Now yeah, that hasn't I, always proven to be true, but we won't do that without that assumption. And, and so, so going the other way, which is when it hasn't proven to be true, what, what would you say is, and maybe there's a bunch of different reasons for that, but what would you say is the, the, the biggest reason you've found deals that don't work? What's, what's, what's kind of like, if you could go back and whisper sure. in old C, early CL's ear and be like, hey, bud, look out for this, this, and this, what would well, you have told I'm myself, but wasn't it Cher that said, if I could turn back time? <laughs> She did. Um, I, as I look at 15 deals that we've done, we've had, we had one significant problem and, and a couple of irritants. The couple of irritants, uh, we came in um, on transactions that are smaller we wouldn't do today. Uh, just not enough meat in the bone. Uh, $15, 20000000 million revenue businesses, we wouldn't do those deals today based on size. As a practical matter, uh, you as we retrospectively assess that, any founder owner operated business is making three, three and a half million on 15 or 20 million of revenue. You know damn well there's no infrastructure going in. You know uh, that guy is the, uh, is the chief contact for customers. You know people in the office uh, look for his permission to go to the restroom. You are completely uh, vulnerable uh, in that scenario. And that's just, that's just endemic to those size businesses. The other one I had, we it was a it was a, a fraud in the accounting challenge. We thought we bought a business that was making seven or eight million. It was making seven or eight uh, million divided by four. And even when you lever, even when you lever the businesses uh, modestly, when you uh, when you multiply EBITDA by twenty five percent, it's a challenge. And that that turned out to be the case. Um, we've had. Uh, but all in all, it's been a uh, it's it's been a great run. We've had five businesses return over seven x, six seven x, uh, and and good returns on the others. That's amazing, man. So going back to that that first comment, uh, you know, it sounds like a, a key a key man risk. You know, they, they they're not big enough. Is it because of the operational nature of your type of business? Where maybe there's other businesses where that might work, but in in a in a you know old world business with key man risk, operating risk, that that just becomes what a bottleneck because they, you are essentially having to hope they figure out the infrastructure problem. Is that really the issue? Um, <laughs> we're in the persuasion business. What I, uh, not the dictation business. What I would say is that, uh, the businesses we buy generally can run to 25, maybe even $50 million under a very skilled driven autocratic founder. But beyond that, not only are those skills insufficient to double or treble the size of the business, they're harmful. Uh, because usually that guy has made money by working 100 hours a week and dominating everything. And if you think of who, who uh, has these businesses, the guys that we show up, we pay 25 to 50 million for their business. They've got 25 or 50 million that they've taken out, put in real estate. So if this is a guy that's worth 50 or 100 million dollars which is 50 to 100 times more than anybody else he knows. And when I say we're in the persuasion business, we are, it's developing credibility with that guy to say, you've done great, but if we're to do better, some things have to change, not beat our chest, new sheriff in town, um, that, sort of, that sort of thing. But uh, we know to get the best outcome when we sell it four to five years down the road, there's seven or eight initiatives, we'll take them over time. But one of the key things we are obsessing when we're evaluating the businesses isn't just the business, the financials, 
is what we believe to be the malleability of the founder to at least uh, enable us, hopefully champion with us, to make some of the changes that we know will benefit the value of the law. And what do you think are the characteristics in an owner-operator, founder of Foo, as you call it, that really is ideal, especially if they, it's a, you know, old world business, autocratic, you know, mindset, they've got it, you know, this is probably in a lot of these businesses, these are folks that like started on the job and let's, I'll make up something up the plumbing business. They were a plumber, yeah. right? They didn't go to, you know, Harvard MBS or take Cornell's leadership, conscious leadership program. These are folks that like grinded to your point, yes. built a significant amount of net worth. And then all of a sudden they're in bed with Crescendo and you're like, hey, bud, like we, we need you to you know, level up because we're trying to you know, roll, mer- merge three of you guys together to build a $150 million company. How do, what's, what are the characteristics you look for in a founder or owner operator to get them to, 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 to where you need to get them to? Um, in our vetting process, I would challenge a couple of their key assumptions. In some time, not in a, uh, not in a uh, aggravated way, but I want to te- I want to push them off center. I'm mainly interested in how they react. I might say something. Uh, uh, if you are Rashard's of the ampersand sons, and you want to sell your business, I say, um, Darius, we love you. I see you got both boys in the business. They might run the business on your nickel, but they're damn sure not doing it on mine. Let's get that out of the way soon. If that's what you think will happen, we're not the right partners. But there might be other sacred cows, but um, what we what we point to is it's easy now. It was not easy to begin with because now we can point to 10 companies we've done this way. Call Bill, Bob, Tom, Joe, Harry. They'll tell you, we don't always agree, but they'll say, Crescendo, good guys. Um, they work hard. We had some fun. We made money with them. And when we disagreed, uh, we disagreed agreeably, and they brought some value to the process. And about the ninth call they make, and they hear the same thing, they, they figure out that the, the, it must be true. But um, the kind of guy that builds this business would not take kindly, would, would not re- it would not resonate if a native San Franciscan who attended boarding school then then Harvard, then the London School of Economics, from a perch in Sobo, decided to tell the guy who came up through the plumbing ranks what he ought to do with his business. Fortunately, um, we are we're Texans and Midwesterners. Um, the, the coastal, the, the normal coastal private equity approach would not play. We are completely. Uh, we talk about things like hunting and fishing and college football which are the exact same things that these guys talk about. Fortunately, uh, we don't have to, uh, we don't have to pretend in that regard as Texans and Midwesterners, um, you know, college football, hunting and fishing are, are pretty important. Yeah. As a new Texan. This is the biggest difference. When I was raising capital for large businesses selling, uh, uh, I primarily raised capital rather than sold businesses, but when you're dealing with the founder owner operators, it's personal. It is absolutely personal. And we have, uh, when we go in and when we speak with these guys for the first time, we've got some guys on our team. They're young, they're smart. Uh, I've told them the only fireable offense is if you tell anybody you went to boarding school or went to Yale. The reason that we are, we have that. Uh, we have two and a half degrees per professional. I mean, we're, we're, uh, but, but that's not what we lead with. Um, we want them to perceive us as a coach. Um, and, and I'll give you an example where I, uh, a couple of examples where I know we did right. One, we closed the deal, made a lot of money, came, and the guy said to me later, said, CL, I presume you went to college, didn't you? And I actually took that as a badge of honor that, that, that it had never come up. Um, it, it had never come up in, in years. Uh, I went to a bunch, but not, not in our discussions. Or another time, Another time, and this is how the personal relationships, if you get them this way, it's gold. We, we bought a business and the guys said, you know, we get a rebate from our purchases every year. You bought it mid-year. Half of that rebate needs to go to me personally because I had the business through June and the other half goes to our combined company. He's right. Well, what he did, what he failed to mention was the same process, the same uh, approach, the symmetry, there's symmetry there with your bonus expenses. You own a bunch of bonus expenses, yet 
um, we're on the hook now. You should have eaten half of them because you own the company for half the year. I called the guy up, he'll remain unnamed, and I said, yo, <laughs> this, this dog don't hunt. This isn't right. He said, you're right. I said, I've got an idea. I said, you're going to expand your premises and probably start charging us more rent. He said, yeah. I said, forget the more rent. Let's move on. He said, that works for me. It, 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 was, it was handled on a very personal basis in less than 30 seconds. And when we, if we get relationships that way, we, we, know we're, we know we're doing well. But we're in the relationship business. Every time we meet a founder, the guys want to ask 700 questions. I tell them our first hour there is to make him like us. Our second hour there is to make him like us. And the last 30 minutes, pick whichever five questions you think are most important. But it, it, we're, we're, we're oh. the bonding and people business. And that is the biggest difference than, than working for large, large known investment banks. I love that, man. I love that so much. So, so when you look That's at. Why you do well in the private equity business. I know, I know. You, you, you've given me that advice before. And I'm like, oh, man, I know. I feel like it's meant, it's meant for me. Uh, I feel called to do it. Um, what, what do you think as far as, you know, kind of, I know it's half joking, but not, you know, what, what these Deerfield, Deerfield Academy, Exeter graduate, you know, these, the, the world of private equity, especially on the coast, you know, it, you really do have this like pedigree. I hate that word, but there's kind of this pedigree in finance. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's so much of this money coming into private equity, uh, you know, I, I feel like it, there's almost a commoditization in that way. Yes. Right. right. When so, I joined, so, I could tell you all fewer than 10 pockets of a billion plus dollars in the state of Texas, for example, when I, you know, years ago. But you're right. The money has been commoditized. There, I think of it as a triangle. There's the deal, there's the talent, and there's the money. And whoever controls two of those, if you have the talent and you have the deal, um, you, you can find the money, uh, uh, not problem. So when you say, so hold on, when you say talent, you mean that you can come in and add value in the deal? Is that what you mean? Whether it's the talent in, in terms of investment talent, some of the things we do, improve systems, process and the like, or whether it's uh, bringing board talent or whether it's outright, uh, bringing executives, uh, on ground executives to bear. But if you've got a good situation bought right, You've got, you've got the playbook, whether it's the private equity playbook or the, uh, additional operating talent. The, if you have those things and you can't find the money, the problem is the market does not believe that you have those things because money, money is pervasive. So, so wait, so you're saying if you have the talent and you have the deal, but you don't have the money, you can find the money? What, yes, the, saying the need. is also true. If you think you've bought the deal well and you've vetted it right and you have good operators managing business and you have a good plan and then the market won't give you money, check your assumptions. Mm. But the market has told you that there's so much money that the market has told you that your assumptions are wrong. Interesting. So if you have so, – so, and I think that's a great point it's to plentiful. make because – so, so if people won't give you the money, especially for an old, old, it's one thing if you're trying to create the next Tesla and they're not giving you money, it's like, okay, well, I'm going from zero to one. I'm creating something that doesn't exist. But if I'm running Johnny Joe's plumbing company, like nothing's changing there, man. Maybe they're getting a little bit better in like the technology around plumbing, but, but like, I don't think it's changing that much. Right. So if, if, if someone's not wanting to give you money, they see something from a real meat and potato operating standpoint or from a market headwind standpoint or macroeconomic standpoint that you're not seeing. So great point to say that, hey, if I'm going out there and beating the bushes and no one's giving me money, then I got to go check my assumptions. I do have one question with that, though. What Derek, about, it's like, no like, different than when I keep putting out songs and no one's buying. The market is talking to me. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, what, so, so kind of in that vein though, because, you know, obviously it's telling you got to change your songs or there's something right. that's not catching. So w w going back to the early days though, when you were just getting started, cause obviously you didn't have the, you know, you had part of the pedigree and that you had done institutional deals. You worked for a large investment banking firm. So, you, so on paper, it's like, see, I was a smart guy that knows how to raise money. 
right? At very high levels, but you hadn't bought and, and helped add value to create as a principal. Like I had, but I had not done so under the crescendo flag. It, it was not, it was not the, it was not the best story. And if your question is, well, how did you make it happen? How did you get those first three or four? I mentioned I bonded yeah. others who had pedigrees, and I also flew 250 to 300 flights a year. I worked my ass off. Got it. That, which, and was that's, no uh, change, uh, which was no change. But, yeah, uh, no, that's, that's a very difficult. The second one, kind of. The third one, not really. The fourth one, and, and you know, it, it, and then they become easy. And, and I kind of lost track on how many we've done at this point. But uh, and it, was, was, it, was there a point where you were like, all right, man, I think I got this. Like I figured it out and, and where I feel comfortable. Like yes. was that the five to eight, eight year point when you're like, all right, I've done enough deals. I, when I meet, when I call up the bankers, they know who I am. When I call up the lenders, right. they know who I am. And, and well, that just took what? Street we, credit, it, I guess. Took, it took three to five years, but we keep doing the same thing. We buy the same kinds of businesses. We have the same approach. Uh, we, we're buying the well. We're putting our own money again. And we're, we're not chasing shiny objects. Uh, we, we have, um, at this point, we've got a whole entire ecosystem. But I did want to res respond to your early point about how we hire into Crescendo uh, and how we think about that. We think about uh, how we want somebody that will ultimately be able to uh, track up to a deal principle. And what we think about, we try to prospectively assess this person's ability to bond and resonate with founders. And I can tell you, we look for an intern, or not an intern, uh, but a, analyst recently, and we talked to some of the better schools that we do, you would know in our fine state and a couple of others, and I felt like these guys were interviewing me. But, uh, the level of entitlement was, so I actually, um, I actually asked Noah, who you know is a Texas Tech grad, Texas Tech is not the Harvard of the South, that's where I got my undergrad. I said, call the Dean of Finance at Texas Tech find out the 10 smartest guys there. And of those 10 smartest guys, I want to talk to the two who have the most grit. And that's exactly, that's exactly who succeeded. We found some, we, we found some guy, I don't know if the timing will quite work. We found a, 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 a fellow from Houston, and, and I don't know, I was making a 7.0 and a 4.0 scale. There are a lot of guys like that. What was interesting though, was he, he was financing his own education. He sh uh, he, he's got working at a restaurant. He's delivering Domino's pizzas, working his ass off. And I said, that's our guy. That's it because yeah. that's the guy that will, that's the guy that will resonate with the fellow who builds our business, who builds the businesses we buy. Oh, it's not the it's not the kid that went to Deerfield Academy whose dad um, is a hedge fund manager. No way. I can't believe who, who grew up in Manhattan. No, are you sure? You sure? <laughs> uh, for whatever no. reason, I don't believe that. Look, it, it might be different, but most, as you said, many, not all, but many of our guys didn't go to college. They're outdoors guys. Most of them show up in jeans and short sleeves, and they have tats, and they may have a beer cooler, and and and, uh, uh, and they drive they, they drive trucks, and they slap the guys on the back, and they they enjoy spending time out in the field. Um, we we need to we're positioned for that guy for him to believe we're the best partner and oftentimes we'll even encourage competition. But if anybody would ever also want one of these businesses that might be let's say normal coastal private equity firm would say yeah please talk to them. It, it, won't, so, go, just, it won't go yeah, well, good in comparison. Is it, it's it's like one of those things where you're like. Let them see the difference. Let yes. them let them have the conversation with the fucking know-it-all who thinks his shit doesn't stink, who's trying to like fake win them over, right? Because they can't. They, they, these, these dudes can't even help themselves. And I'm I'm I'm, I'm speaking yes. just from personal experience. Exactly. Like, like it's like fake sincerity around like yes. meeting the meeting Job six pack where he's at. Whereas like they're no offense, but in like their mind, in their minds they're slumming. Yeah, the, like they can't. It, it, I, I, man, it, 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 it's it, it, it's simple. We show up, and what we say is, "Look, we have a skill set that you don't have. We can buy. We have extra capital. We know how businesses sell. We don't know how to run plumbing businesses, or electrical businesses, or pool businesses, or any kind of business. You have that. We can make a lot more money together if we are respectfully collaborative, bringing disparate, complementary skills. We can make." 
we make better music together than we can independently. That's that's what was, and that resonates. I love it, man. So I, I want to. I know we're getting near the end here. I want to go two different directions really quickly. We have we have a question that we end every show, and it's called the greatness question. But before we go there, I'd love. I know that you didn't you. I want you to talk a little bit about playing reggae music in the Caribbean because I think it's just such a cool story. Well, and, and 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 <laughs> come on, man, just get, 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 give us a little taste. Well, it's it's such it's, a cool story. It's well. It's not as it's not as big a deal as it sounds. Although I tell my daughter, I, you know, I, I maybe maybe spent a, a year uh, of my life. But that's ninety percent of my good stories. Um, but it started actually when I went on a lark to the Turks and Caicos at the Club Med. There, uh, I think I'd broken up with a girlfriend, and I decided, why not Club Med at Turks and Caicos to think about things? They had a piano there, and if there's a piano there, I can't go more than a couple of days without playing it. And, you know, I banged around and met a couple of guys, and they said they're doing, uh, uh, they're going to run around, primarily think of it as the English-speaking Caribbean hotel circuit. And what started as a band ended up primarily being a Bob, uh, Bob Marley covers, um, which, which is fine by me. Anytime the guys wanted to play one, uh, uh, in a, a non-Bob Marley song, people would just go to the bathroom and get up and get beer. So... There's about 10 or 12 Bob Marley songs that everybody knows. There's another 20 Bob Marley songs that every Caribbean native knows. And, um, and uh, it, was, it, it was a lot of fun, but I tried to scratch that musical itch uh, a, lot of diff- a lot of different ways and never really had as much fun as I did in the recording studio. If I can, if I, just to give you a sense of, it would be like, um, you know, Tim Duncan and Manu and Tony said, uh, you know, hey, CL, why don't you be part of the gang for a month? You know, sure. <laughs> um, because the, uh, through it came to a Tiger t- connection once removed, but I found a producer who's worked for Coldplay. He brings in a lead singer who led a band called Click Five. They had four or five top 40 hits. The keyboardist, the native Texan, as is the producer, he tours with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. The the mixer has wow. mixed for Beyonce and Jay-Z. And, I mean, these... The keyboard, I used to think I played the keyboards until I saw this guy played the keyboards. And anyway, I'm sitting in there with a smile, and you're giving this, well, little money helps, but you're giving this TLC to what I call my shitty little ditties. And and they're about uh, done. Some of them are really good by accident, <laughs> by transformation. I love it. But it's crazy fun. So whether your passion is, I don't know, uh, you know, if you're a rollerblader uh, and you spend a weekend with Rob Deerdick, uh or, um, you know, whatever your passion is, painting um, and to be able to rub elbows with the stars and um, crazy fun, crazy fun. I love it, man. And you're, you're such a, you're such a, ex- a great example of someone that that's, that's just doing your thing, man, kicking ass, taking names and then living your passions. And that's, that's what the show's all about. So I love hearing that, man. Well, um, you're a sports fan, right? Uh, you know, not really. I don't, okay. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I like to play that's sports. Perfect. I never like to watch. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I, you're, you're going to appreciate this. I was talking to someone about this yesterday. I said, I am a person that likes to podcast. I don't listen to podcasts. And when I, I was an athlete all the way through till through college, really, yes. but I never really watched sport, watch sports, but I like playing them. Well, I'm a I very competitive to, person. I was going to give an analogy about making, about making music that no one else cares about. There was a famous boxing rivalry. Uh, I think there were four middleweights, Roberto Duran, Sugar Ray Leonard, Thomas, uh, Hack, Thomas Hines and Marvin Hackett. And they all fought each other, yep. won and lost. Tommy Hearns was asked what Marvin Hagler was doing one time. And his famous quote, he said, and I'll get it verbatim. He said, Marvin, making movies in Italy, ain't nobody watching. So, <laughs> I'm making music in New York, ain't nobody listening to. But I'm having fun. <laughs> Well, yeah, when, you, when, you're, when you're Marvin Hagler, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> there's, a rumor, there's a rumor that one of the tunes might make the top 40 list in the Turner household. Wow. Wow. I can't wait. I can't wait. To, when am I going to get to hear your songs? Are you going to uh, play them at Tiger? We're, it's about done. I, if you're really serious, text me, email me, whatever. And, uh, yeah, it's, I am. I, I'm, proud of, I'm really proud of about half of them. 
you got to put them on. You got to put them on SoundCloud just to see what happens. I'm actually going to make a couple of music videos because why not? Do you have Do you have a person that will direct your music videos? Yes, I do. Okay, I was going to say I have a friend that won a video music award. He won a VMA for MTV oh. for. He's he's he was he, he did video music awards for Britney Spears, Kesha, Black Keys. This guy won a VMA for best new no, director. I know Kesha is K E I dollar sign H A. Yeah, there you go. So that's what uh, nineteen year old daughter will do. If you're if you if you haven't finalized, I can hook you up with Chris no, Morris Calero, who I went to high school with. <laughs> He's he is an award winning video video music director. Um, I've tried to get him on the show. Well, he's 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 not he hasn't been very receptive, but he is an old friend of mine. Um, all right, let's go to the greatness question. I'll get you out of here. I know it's Friday afternoon, and I and I want to respect your time. So, here at the Greatness Machine, like I said, we are about people are living their passions to create greatness in the world and doing so despite the odds. So this is kind of an underdog uh, a show. Phil so, Collins against all odds. There you go. So. What is the number one barrier to creating greatness that you have overcome in your life, and how did you overcome it? That's an excellent question. In my professional life, that would be uh, that I did not go to elite colleges with Texas Tech and SMU. I, I, I later got another degree, but there were so few spots available uh, at uh, the Goldman Sachs and whatever investment firms that they did not need to look any further than that uh, than the uh, inner sanctum uh, of Ivy's when I was coming up. But what I later realized, uh, not trying to sound pretentious, I, I remember it being a revelation because I know I can work smarter, I can work harder than that, guys. And it was a revelation you find out they weren't smarter. Um, and, and I knew I could outwork. And I said, there's an opening. There's an opening here in my, uh, in my personal life. Uh, my greatest obstacle is myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm the greatest lady of all times. So uh, just just serendipity. And, and and on the on the on the professional side, did you overcome it? Obviously, if you're being smarter is one thing. Was it the was the answer that working harder was that really it? I love it, man. You can always you can always overcome nothing like hard work to overcome the shortcomings. Exactly. I love it. Yeah, man. I love no, it. And, and I appreciate here, you. Boss. Not, neither here, my friend. Um, oh, man. What a, a so much fun having you on the show. So, look, if, if I got an old world business and I want to maybe think about launching it and maybe partnering with someone to help me exit my company or going for get, getting some chips off the table and I want to talk to you, CL, how, how might I get in touch with uh, Crescendo? You can find me on our website at crescendocap.com. Or you can All right. Call We're Either way. We'll put that. So we're going to put it in the show notes, crescendocap.com. Great little website there that they have, by the way. Uh, so you guys can link in there, go through their contact information. And um, wow, here we are at the end. My man, CL Turner, appreciate you. So much gratitude from me having you here on The Greatness Machine. Thank you so much, my friend. Be well. Have a great weekend. See you now. And, and for, for the audience, listen. As leaders, we're givers and sharers. Share this information with anyone that needs to hear all about all the greatness that CL is bringing into the world. Until next time, peace out. We love you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on. So that you don't miss any of our future episodes, we have tons of great people coming on and we're, we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. 
And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.